This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson, and I'm greeting you from the Kingdom of Tonga. Jan and Sophie just got onto their plane and are headed back to the U.S., and we've hit the 50th episode milestone, and I wanted to take a moment in this episode to look back at what we intended to accomplish with the podcast, what we have accomplished, what I promised to do in terms of sailing, and the people that uh, I've brought to you uh, with their inspiring stories about sailing around the world and to offshore ports. Here's a word from our title sponsor, Mantis Marine. Why don't you tell me about how you came up with the swivel? So people, they like to use them. And we would notice and explain to them a lot of the weaknesses that exist that, you know, with the swivels that were on the market and kind of make sure that they understood those cautions and saying, yeah, swivels have a function, but you're weighing that, you know, what you're gaining versus the risks that you're taking on the other hand. So you have to consider every situation on whether you really want to be utilizing the swivel or not. And I think that we just saw kind of like there's a need in the marketplace for something that was a better design and something more reliable. We use the innovative heavy-duty Mantis swivel on our boat. You can get the Mantis swivel or all their other fine nautical gear at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. In the first episode of this podcast, I gave you a sample of the first chapter of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. I'm going to give you an additional sample of that book, which I think is so important for everyone to read before they set out on a long-term foreign cruise. Today, I'm giving you chapters three and four of that book, as part of the podcast, and you can get the rest by pledging just $1 on patreon.com, and you can hear the entire audiobook. It's also available on Amazon in paperback and ebook version. And if you do not want to become a patron, you can buy it at Gumroad in audiobook format. Now, in chapter one, which you heard in episode one of this podcast, I did not know if I was going to make it to Panama. That was my plan. That was the plan I set out with to start this podcast. I had not cast off the dock lines at that time. I did cast off the dock lines at the earliest time possible after my teaching was done. And uh, we did make it to Panama and all the way to Ecuador in season one. And that in season two, we went to the Marquesas and to Tahiti. And in season three, uh, we've gone through the Society Islands, through the Cook Islands, to the Kingdom of Tonga. And that's where I hope that we will stay at the end of this season. And our plan for season four is to go through Fiji and New Caledonia. But for the last four years, I've been cruising, but I didn't quit my job. And my wife still says she doesn't want to sell the house and move on to a boat. And I don't expect that to change for the next decade. We never would have been able to go cruising four seasons had we quit our jobs. We would have ran out of money. We would have ran out of patience uh, with boating, and we wouldn't have got nearly as far. And it was only through sailing around the world part-time that we've gone and crossed the international dateline, become 
gone from polywogs to shellbacks and transited the Panama Canal. And I'm so happy to bring you those adventures on our Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel and on this podcast. But I wanted to do more with this podcast because I wanted to talk to people. The reason why I was able to write a book about sailing around the world was not because I did it, but because I read about it, because I studied it for many years. I, I teach finance. I've never led an IPO, never been part of an IPO. I've never underwritten a loan, but I still teach finance because I study it. And too often, people that write about these things only write from their one time doing it. And when you write from your one time experience doing it, it's anecdotal. And I've tried to bring you the bigger picture uh, in How to Sail Around the World part-time through the many, many dozens of accounts of circumnavigators. And one of the reasons why I produced the ebook and audiobook version of Harry Pigeon's classic, Around the World Single-Handed, The Cruise of the Islander, is because I love to learn the stories of successful circumnavigators. And I've, heard, I've read those many of those stories, and I'm so happy I was able to bring you Harry Pigeon's story. But I brought you the stories of the, the wonderful YouTube channels of people like S.V. Delos, Gone with the Winds, White Spot Pirates, and so many others who have amazing stories. But do I think that their success on YouTube can be replicated uh, so that you can sail around the world right now? No. I think that is something like akin to expecting to win the lottery and having that as your financial strategy. And the reason why I wrote How to Sail Around the World part-time when I did in such a short format as I did was because I thought more people would read it if it was short. More people would read it if I wrote it then than waited until I completed a circumnavigation, if I completed a circumnavigation. That more people's misconceptions that were keeping them from throwing off the dock lines could be corrected so they could go on the cruise of their dreams faster if I put it out right away. And I didn't think that your precious years of your life could be wasted by my inaction. And so I acted, and I wrote it, and I want to bring you a part of that story today. And so if you've not done so already, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast because... Unlike what some people who want to sell you very expensive captained offshore trips will say, theirs are not the only uh, podcast about offshore sailing. I'm not a professional. I'm an amateur. I love cruising, right? Like you love cruising. I'm not trying to sell you any expensive trips. I have a full-time job. My wife has a full-time job. I am only trying to change your life and get you to follow your dreams. And so Pollywogs who try to sell you $4,000 trips that say they're the only podcast on offshore sailing, I don't think you should trust your lives on their boat, and I don't think you should trust your time when they're trying to sell you a bill of goods. That there are lots of podcasts out there talking about offshore sailing and offshore cruising and I'm always bringing you the, the stories of offshore cruisers and also telling you my stories of sailing offshore. Without further ado, here is Chapter 3 of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. 
Chapter 3, Geography and Tropical Storm Seasons. The standard trade wind circumnavigation for cruisers starts and ends in the Eastern Caribbean and goes through the Panama Canal, the South Pacific, north of Australia, through the South Indian Ocean to Madagascar, around South Africa, up the South Atlantic, and back to the Eastern Caribbean. For boats starting on the west coast of North America, if they go to the South Pacific before the Eastern Caribbean, they probably complete a circumnavigation offshore along the Mexican coast. Many boats from the west coast of North America will opt to go east in the Panama Canal and explore the Eastern Caribbean before crossing the Panama Canal east to west and tackling the Pacific Ocean. In that case, the Eastern Caribbean will also be where they first complete their circumnavigation. For boats from Europe or the eastern coast of North America, they will complete the circumnavigation crossing their outbound tracks in the Eastern Caribbean. Boats departing from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and South America will likely first cross their outbound tracks near their home ports. The increase in Somali pirate activity in the Gulf of Aden and the capture and the ransom and deaths of the cruising boat crews have recently dissuaded many cruising boats from circumnavigating by way of the Mediterranean and the Red Seas. The capture of the U.S. flag sailing vessel SV Quest in 2011 and the subsequent shooting of its four crew members has stopped almost all cruising boats from transiting the Suez Canal up to the time of writing in 2016. Even before the increase in piracy, the Suez Canal route was a difficult passage for most sailing vessels. Heavy ship traffic made it hard to keep crew rested. East to west circumnavigators faced winds, which were primarily northerly, with frequent gales opposing their progress up the Red Sea. Dust storms coated their decks hardware and sails. Moreover, Saudi Arabia, the western shore of the Red Sea, was off-limits to cruising boats. In the film Beyond the West Horizon, Eric Hiscock said of his 1952 to 1955 circumnavigation in a small yacht with his wife, we had chosen to come not the easy way around the Cape of Good Hope, but the more difficult way up the Red Sea. Once a boat made it to the Suez Canal, cruisers often complained that rampant corruption, Bakshish, greeted them in Egypt. The Mediterranean is on a fairly high latitude. It is cold and the winds are not as predictable as in the trade wind belt. A boat could spend two decades exploring the Med, as Franz Amundsen has talked about in his Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast, or sail its length in a month. Amundsen sails his boat a couple of months per year. Nevertheless, he warns that the winds are not predictable and gale force Meltemi storms are common. In their film Beyond the West Horizon, Eric and Susan Hiscock said their greatest winds of the trip, 80 knots, were experienced in port on the Greek island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean. The region around the equator is a dead zone for tropical storms. Hurricanes and typhoons 
rarely get close to the equatorial latitudes, referred to as the doldrums or the intertropical convergence zone, or ITCZ for short. The ITCZ is subject to fickle winds, frequent calms, and numerous thundersqualls. The most common circumnavigation today, starting in the Eastern Caribbean, going through the Panama Canal, and sailing around South Africa, will spend most of its sea miles, 95%, in the ITCZ or the Southern Hemisphere. In this route across the ITCZ and Southern Hemisphere, only the transits of the South Pacific or South Indian Oceans are subject to the threat of revolving tropical storms. The South Atlantic is not plagued by tropical storms, nor is Panama or the northern coast of South America. There is a myth circulated by sailors of the endless summer, to borrow a phrase from the title of the famous surfing film. The myth is that the circumnavigators can avoid hurricane and cyclone season by skillfully moving around the trade wind belt. In practice, this is not possible. What happens, in fact, is the full-time cruisers get caught in an endless washing machine. They end up repeatedly circling the same patch of stormy ocean trying to avoid cyclone season. For two-thirds of the sea miles, the cyclone season runs from November to April or May. The South Indian cyclone season runs from November to April or May. Likewise, the South Pacific cyclone season runs from November to April. That means that for prudent cruisers, large ocean passages are off the table in the majority of the circumnavigation from November to April. From roughly the Galapagos Islands, about 850 miles west of Panama, near the equator, to Durban, South Africa, ocean passages in November through April must be avoided. That is over 17,000 nautical miles. A cruising boat would not be able to stop for any length of time during the six months from May to October when southern hemisphere cyclones rarely occur. Few boats or their crews are able to maintain that pace. In practice, cruisers often spend cyclone season in the danger zone. New Zealand, Australia, Fiji, New Caledonia, the Cook Islands, and Samoa are places in the South Pacific where cruisers have been known to park their boats in November to April. This is not much different from what boaters in the U.S. do. Many boaters risk hurricanes by parking their boats on the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic coasts. Many boats were destroyed when Hurricane Katrina devastated eastern Louisiana and Mississippi, and when Hurricane Sandy hit New York and New Jersey. The best sailors can do is more haul out or tie up their boats well during hurricane, cyclone, and typhoon season and not be on their boats when the big one hits. My home port of New Orleans housed my sailboats from 2010 to 2016, but I did not lose sleep about dying in a hurricane because I had no intention of being on my boat when the next one hit. 
With this huge expanse of desirable cruising grounds in the South Pacific, crossing in one season means that interesting stops will have to be skipped in a mad rush to get to safe Australia or New Zealand. A better option is to haul out the boat in Raiatea or securely tie it to a marina in Papit Tahiti. Go back to your job or home for between 10 and 6 months and pick up cruising again sometime between May and September. Visit Tonga and Fiji and haul out the boat in Fiji. Again, go back to your job or home for between 10 to 6 months and pick up cruising again sometime between May and September. Visit Vanuatu and New Caledonia and haul out or tie up in a marina for 6 to 10 months while you are gone. From there, you can decide if you want to cruise Indonesia or Australia and the Great Barrier Reef. Sure, you could spend years exploring Australia full-time, as you probably could any continental-sized nation, such as the U.S., Russia, or China. However, few Americans sailing the South Pacific want to devote years crisscrossing the U.S. in a recreational vehicle. Why should so many potential circumnavigators feel like they must do that in Australia? Such journeys, while potentially interesting, miss the point of circumnavigation. It is sailing in a line around the world. It is not a complete exploration of every pocket of the globe. Why not buy an RV and travel across Asia? It might be fun, but it has nothing to do with sailing around the world. Sailing from New Caledonia to Darwin, Australia on the northwest coast is about 4,000 nautical miles. That is a trip that can be accomplished in two to six months. Alternatively, the boat can be left in some Australian port along the way, leaving the passage to Darwin and Indonesia for another season. A part-timer can park the boat in Indonesia for a season. Lombok and Bali are candidates. The transit across the Indian Ocean to approximately Durban, South Africa, on the northeast coast of South Africa, makes many potential circumnavigators sell their boats in Australia. Nevertheless, the sea miles, about 5,000, are less than the transit from Panama to Tahiti. Moreover, that open ocean crossing is broken up by stopovers along the way, the Cocos Keeling, Chagos, or Mauritius. Unlike the 3,000 nautical mile trip from the Galapagos to the Marquesas in the eastern Pacific. According to Jimmy Cornell in 2010, 826 boats made it to Tahiti. But those numbers had thinned considerably in Australia where only 450 foreign yachts checked in that year. The numbers dwindle further when one looks at the popular mid-Indian Ocean stopovers of Mauritius and Chagos. The north route around Madagascar stops at the island of Chagos, and the south route around Madagascar often has boats stopping at Mauritius. There were only 104 and 125 foreign boats respectively checking in at Chagos and Mauritius. It would be nice to have more recent numbers because almost all potential circumnavigators are skipping the Red Sea since the murders of the crew SV Quest in 2011 by Somali pirates. Madagascar is notorious for petty theft, 
that may deter many from leaving their boats there hauled out or unattended for six to ten months. Leaving the boat in South Africa probably means that part-timer will want to leave the boat in South Africa for nearly a year. In the next season, the part-time circumnavigator will tackle the trickly rounding of Cape Agullis. This is a dangerous stretch of water with strong currents and the seemingly endless fetch of the notorious Southern Ocean. Some of the biggest waves ever recorded were around Cape Agullis. A boat with a good engine will want to port hop and pick its rounding window carefully. The Agullis current runs along the west coast of South Africa. This will speed the east to west trade wind circumnavigators trips. But sailors must be careful to avoid south winds, which can kick up monstrous seas. It should be treated with at least as much care as the North Atlantic's Gulf Stream current. The Gullis current is a problem that must be managed both on the approach to South Africa's northeast coast and the rounding of that Great Cape. If the cruiser's boat makes it to Cape Town, that is probably a good place to stop if immigration will allow it. Multi-entry visas or temporary residence permits are probably worth investigating prior to landing in South Africa. Boats will cross the South Atlantic from Cape Town on the western side of South Africa, and Jimmy Cornell argues that most will stop in St. Helena in the South Atlantic on the way to Brazil. That Atlantic crossing with the southeast trades on the stern is about 3,600 nautical miles. Once in Brazil, the part-time circumnavigator will probably want to haul out and go home before another ocean voyage or a long cruise. This stretch of water has no tropical storms, so the part-time circumnavigator is not limited to only May to November, as she has been for the last several years since leaving Panama. Since the path to the Caribbean goes through the fickle winds of the ITCZ, the doldrums, the cruiser may want to port hop to keep the diesel tanks full. Going offshore certainly does not save many miles as you angle for the southeast Caribbean. Trinidad has good marine facilities and is out of the North Atlantic hurricane zone. The world cruiser may choose this as the next place to haul out and store her boat. Once back in the Caribbean, the part-time circumnavigator will have to change her schedule. She can only cruise from December to May to avoid the hurricane season. By this time, most boats will be very close to closing the circle on their outbound track and technically completing the circumnavigation. If they still have money and still love boating, they will want to savor the beam reach of the Eastern Caribbean. Most boats from the Atlantic Basin will probably want to leave the islands and be almost home before June. The West Coast sailors that explore the Eastern Caribbean in one season will want to sail to Panama before June and haul out there to wait out Eastern Pacific hurricane season before making their way north to their home ports. The Pacific coast of Mexico is a dangerous place to be in a boat during hurricane season. Chapter 4, The Round Trip Problem In some sense, cruising permits 
with three to six month time horizons check this temptation to linger. But many cruisers counteract this tendency by returning year after year to the same cruising grounds. Seasonal weather patterns and hurricane and typhoon seasons also push boats to not linger for the whole year. For example, my wife and I met cruisers, small sailboat owners, who had visited the Bahamas over 20 times. With over 300 islands mostly uninhabited, they had more places to explore. Nevertheless, my personal opinion was that sampling a new cruising ground would be a more interesting experience than honing an expertise in sailing in the beautiful Bahamas. People cruising between Florida and the Bahamas, as Martin Lane Smith did early on in his cruising on his sailing catamaran Dos Gatos, the round trip is not too time-consuming. However, when the cyclone season port is thousands of miles of open ocean away from the desirable cruising grounds, a seasonal migration is a bigger drain on the cruise time and patience. Pacific cruisers often rush from the Eastern Caribbean to Australia or New Zealand in less than 12 months. This fast pace and heavy doses of ocean crossings in a single year can take a lot out of a boat and its crew. After years of a few thousand miles a year, Caribbean cruisers continuing on circumnavigations jump to 10,000 nautical miles in a single year. This is a huge increase in miles and long ocean passages. This is the prescription of the world arc and the experience of many cruisers crossing the Pacific after cruising the Caribbean. Martin Lane Smith and his partner departed from Trinidad in the Eastern Caribbean in November 2006 and arrived in Australia in November 2007. At the same time, this means that these cruisers feel they have missed out on exploring Tonga, Fiji, and Vanuatu. Strict limits on cruising permits in French Polynesia prevent full-time liveaboard cruisers from lingering on its islands of the Marquesas, Tuamotus, Tahiti, and Raiatea. However, a part-time circumnavigator could leave her boat for a year in French Polynesia even if she could only stay in the country for 90 days. The round trip to the safe home port on the mainland means many sea miles are covering old ground. If someone is in the trade wind belt, that often means that one part of the round trip is rough. Many Pacific cruisers leave the trade wind destinations of Fiji, Tonga, and Vanuatu to go to safe New Zealand. Nevertheless, that usually means a rough passage on one leg of the roughly 1,000 nautical mile trip from Auckland, New Zealand. New Zealand is notorious for frequent near gale conditions of 30 knots, nautical miles per hour, of wind. Lows frequently develop between New Zealand and the trade wind belt. After such poundings, many cruisers often lose their tolerance for further ocean passage making. Wendy Hinman in Tightwads on the Loose, a seven-year Pacific odyssey, sums up many cruisers' experiences. The good news about our passage to Fiji from New Zealand was that we arrived safely. The bad news was that we had to live through it. She described 25 to 40 knot winds and 15 foot seas 
on the 11-day passage, acknowledging that their trip would have been much more pleasant had they sailed downwind to New Caledonia instead of upwind to Fiji. Round trips can be appealing. It gives one a chance to stop at new places on the way back. Returning to familiar territory can be comforting. It just does not get you around the world. Every day spent backtracking is a day the cruiser will never have again. Eventually, life will intervene in terms of health, money, family, etc. and put an end to the cruise. I found that after two weeks in a particular port, I started feeling like a commuter. The daily grind of the dinghy replaces the daily grind of the commute in the car. To a lesser extent, sailing over familiar seas can feel like an extended commute. At some point we advance or stagnate. The grind of sailing back and forth between Australia and other South Pacific destinations came through in Martin Lane Smith's later Podcast Away podcast episodes. He spent several cyclone seasons on a mooring in Bundaberg, Australia, commuting in the months outside of cyclone season to Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. These passages on his large sailing catamaran, Dos Gatos, were often rough with beam on seas at best. At worst, he and his wife faced headwinds. They also had to move the boat outside of Australia each season to satisfy customs and immigration constraints. After four seasons of this, he and his wife sold their boat. They bought an RV to explore Australia. Nevertheless, after four years, it became hard to play tourist. Their family was halfway across the world. They could have been in their home port after four years, but instead they had to see one more great dive site, which was not downwind. They ended up being fed up with life on a mooring. They listed their boat. Mr. Lane Smith even says that they would be interested in living on a boat part-time in the Caribbean. After 11 years, they had enough of full-time cruising. My analysis of the Latitude 38 data suggests that given a boat will complete a circumnavigation, 88% will complete it in under 11 years. According to Jimmy Cornell, the numbers of boats continuing on a circumnavigation nearly halves after Australia. Thus, it seems that Martin Lane Smith's experiences were not at all unusual. Indeed, Mr. Cornell quotes Tom Walker, Many world cruisers become caught in the South Pacific gyre. This is a vast, imaginary current which sweeps cruisers north from New Zealand and Australia to the islands for the austral winter. It sweeps them south again for cyclone season. Some cruisers become caught in the gyre for many years. The cruisers caught in the gyre have to repeatedly cross one of the most notorious stretches of ocean, the Tasman Sea, which separates the islands of Vanuatu and Fiji from New Zealand and Australia. A better solution is not to rush across the Pacific Ocean in an entire season. Haul out the boat in Raiatea, fly back to your home, job, family, or do some land traveling, and then return to the South Pacific and sail for Tonga and Fiji the next season. Haul out the boat in Fiji. By repeating this process, you can avoid the round trips in stormy seas to and from Australia and New Zealand. 
I talked to Greg Cutson of Mantis Anchors about why weight in the tip of the Mantis Anchor is so important. The main issue I perceived with anchors was not really ultimate holding power. The reason they failed was because they never really properly set first place. So very rarely, 25 knots, you're overpowering a well-set anchor. We wanted to create something that guarantees you a universal set. As a cruiser, when you go around, you find unique locations that are really hard to get an anchor to bite. And we solve that problem. Go to mantisanchors.com to order yours for a better night's sleep. All Mantis Marine's products are available at mantismarine.com and other fine retailers. We love our Mantis Swivel, Mantis Anchor, and our Mantis Chain Grabber on the slow boat. All right, if you'd like to hear the full audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, you can pledge just $1 on patreon.com slash sailing. The patrons of this podcast also get 40 bonus episodes starting with episode 10, so we're at episode 50, so 40 bonus episodes here by episode 50, plus uh, $1 will get you How to Sail Around the World part-time. You go up to the $3 level, you get Slow Boat to Cuba, which talks about the trip that I promised to do and how to sail around the world part-time, and if you go up to the $5 level, you get the audiobook of Harry Pigeon's classic, Around the World Single-Handed. I just want to buy the audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. I'm giving a 50% off promo code, which is SLOW50, S-L-O-W-5-0, for the sale of it on gumroad.com slash L slash sailing, which is in the show notes. And you can put that in and get half off and change your life for a few dollars for less than a venti cappuccino at Starbucks. In next month's episode, we're going to feature a reading uh, from a wonderful sailing author and former guest of this program, Annie Dyke. And, you know, I'd like to encourage other sailing authors. We've given a lot of time to people going on amazing trips and, and documenting them in their YouTube channels. But I'd also like to reach out to more authors, you know, if they have the audiobook rights to their books. An audiobook's never been created. They never signed away those rights or they self-published. Read a chapter to your book. Send it to me. Use an audio, a free audio editing program. And uh, we'd love to ha- hear more uh, from sailing authors about their stories so we can learn not just from the videographers but from the writers. So if you're interested in speaking on the podcast, send me an email at linuswilson at outlook.com. Uh, possible things that you could do are to read one of your better sailing blogs or to interview an interesting cruising sailor. I like to hear the voices of other cruising sailors and if there are people out there that would like to speak, whether through their, their books, their blogs, or through interviewing another cruising sailor, send me an email or reach out to me at Linus Wilson on Facebook Messenger or at Slow Boat Sailing on Facebook Messenger. I think it, what I left you off with the last episode that uh, the engine was not working, Janet did come with the part. We did put that part in. We also successfully bled the 
engine here in Tonga Tapu. We did have to bleed the injectors. You know, I think in general, they say with the Raycor filters that you need to hand tighten them. But my experience is if you hand tighten them, you, you still get air in the system. And if you tighten them down a little bit with a wrench, then they then you don't you stop getting that air intrusion. But we still had some air in the injectors, which we did bleed out. The best practices, I would say, for bleeding the injectors uh, from all the stuff that I read and from what worked and what didn't work. Uh, number one, I think the injectors, from what I read, are too high pressure to hand pump. So your engine may have a hand pump. Ours does. I use that for the the, the two lower bleed screws, but it, it shouldn't work on the injectors. It, they need a higher pressure than that hand pump can create. So you need to crank the engine. Ideally, if your engine has decompression levers, I would say take don't let the engine compress and thus turn over and start. But you also don't want to overtask the starter, so you don't want to crank for more than 10 to 15 seconds. You want to see you want to see fuel coming out, but you don't want to get too close so that you hurt yourself because it could come out and, and really hurt your skin at a high speed. Uh, so it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, I don't think there's no any ideal thing, but you want to at least observe that there's no there's fuel coming out. Uh, but how close you get, that's a that's a I guess a matter of safety. I didn't get super close, but I did watch the fuel coming out. We cranked for about one to two minutes in a series of say seven or eight different crankings, where we had a pause between them for the starter and it did start right up right after that and then we ran the engine for two hours at high rpms and you do want to crank at high rpm so if you can disable your engine so that it doesn't turn the propeller shaft you want to have high rpms say if you're charging the engine and anchor you want to have high rpms for instance the balmar is going to run optimally close to 2,000 RPMs, not very optimally around 1,000 RPMs. So if you have a way to disable the propeller while running the engine, that that's ideal uh, on your on your diesel engine for your sailboat. So we did get it going. The other thing that I think is best practice uh, when cranking, before you start cranking, you want to close the water seacock. You know, bleeding, having air in the system is one problem. Having salt water in the system is another problem. While you're cranking, you could be sucking salt water, and that could be backing into your engine. So uh, you just need to remember while you're cranking just to bleed, you want to keep that C-clock closed for that minute or two if you're doing it that much. You might only be doing it a few seconds. And then when you want to turn over the engine, you need to turn on you open up the seacock and observe the water flowing. It's possible if you have it closed, there could be some sort of priming problem and you'll have to deal with that. But that's a lot less than dealing with a, a saltwater backed up engine, which could go from a simple bleeding problem to a multi-thousand dollar problem. The other thing that may not be obvious, and it wasn't obvious to me, is that you want to bleed at the intake of the injectors, not the outtake. Uh, and that was where I got into the bleed screw problem, which I discussed in the last episode. I think that 
in most cases, if you're doing a fuel filter change or if you're having a dying problem, you're not going to want to go to the injectors. It's probably not going to be helpful. It's probably not got all the way up there. The uh, issue for us was that we didn't have a proper bleed screw in the secondary filter, and that led us to not bleed out all the air initially, and it went up and it went up in the system. Uh, but in general, most of the time, bleeding at the secondary will be sufficient, at least for my engine. The first bleed screw and then the second bleed screw um, will be sufficient in, you know, all the rest of the times, except for a small number of the cases that you'll have to bleed the injectors. So don't, don't crack open the injectors every time you bleed the engine is the advice that I think most people give you. While Jan and Sophie were here, we uh, replaced the furling line uh, with a better, uh, the 12 braid instead of the Dyneema. We put back in the third reef. We put in uh, a new VHF in the cockpit. We've got a VHF in the cabin, which is the, the big, big antenna one. There's a smaller antenna one in the cockpit that uh, was not receiving. It was sending, but not receiving. Maybe the speaker was bad. We replace that. Uh, so we got a, a, a lot of kind of work ready, uh, all the kind of kinks that we got into the system from uh, the second longest passage since we've owned Contango, the slow boat. That, so now that we're more ready for going up to Vavavu, which is not a necessarily easy trip. Uh, it's over almost 200 miles, 150, 200 miles, plus you've got a lot of hazards in between. You could do it all in an offshore passage. I'm probably going to do it in a few overnights and maybe a day trip or so. Jimmy Cornell tracks the movements of yachts. I talked about that in my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, and uh, one of the things that he finds and it's seems very true to me, is that only about 150 people visit Nukalofa every year, which is the, or Nukalofa or the Tongatapu group, uh, but quite a few of them visit Neafu and the Vavu group. So the Vavu group is in the north and Tongatapu is in the south. Uh, you know, I'd say probably most of the cruisers visiting Tongatapu are coming up from New Zealand uh, to Tonga after the season and they uh, just stop here as the first stop. It, it is an awkward uh, part is you can't really day trip it during the austral winter that from port to port or it's a long day trip. The, the nearest place that I can see to anchor is almost 50 miles away outside of the Tongatapu group. And then you have to do several day trips through Potentially reef-strewn areas. I don't know. It's you know the 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 take on Tonga is that the charts are very bad. You need eyeball navigation, especially in the shallows. You know the other thing that uh, you have about the Tonga group is that there's some really active volcanoes out there that are the islands are still building. Uh, so uh, to get to Vavu from Tonga Tapu, you sail fairly close even if you're, you're stay, staying well offshore in the deep water you can easily get within two miles of the charted volcanoes so uh, that's something that I'm going to have to uh, keep in mind the active volcanoes of course most of the South Pacific Islands are volcanic but they're 
mostly not that active, uh, but there's some new islands forming in the Kingdom of Tonga. So the problem I face going north is that the Vava'u group, or Neafu, the capital of Vava'u, is about north-northeast, and so if I have an east wind, there's a good chance I won't be able to be close-hauled and make port without tacking. And so I'm waiting for some more southerly winds, hopefully southeast winds, or better, south is even better, so that I'm not fighting the wind. And I'm expecting that in a few days, but uh, mostly we've had east or east-southeast winds of 15 to 20 knots, and that's something you definitely don't want to bash into if you're not at least close-hauled, uh, but you don't want to bash into with the motor. And so that's that's what I have been waiting for. Uh, we have got we have some south winds expected, and I hope to take advantage of those. The other is that the groups are kind of far away, and so it's hard to to make uh, all the progress. And what I what I noticed was that even if you do kind of island hop, you pretty much almost need to do an overnight to get out of the Tongatapu group. And then you pretty much, at least for both of you, you're not sure it's going to go much faster than five knots, depending on the conditions. You pretty much need to do an overnight from the Hapai group, I think, to the, the Vava'u. And so uh, that that's not, that's not ideally what you want. Uh, but you know, the society islands are like that, too, and we did have to do that overnight from Morea to Raiatea. In general, uh, most cruisers aren't going to visit Nukalopa, so it's about three to four times, like over 500 boats visit um, Neafu and Mabau versus Nukalopa and Tongatapu, uh, which only get about 150 boats each year, according to Jimmy Cornell's stats. And... You know, I totally see why that is. Babau not only has the better anchorages, the better protection, uh, the more frequent anchorages close together, but it also is more on the latitude of Nui, which is an intermediate stop as you're going from French Polynesia, or it's also closer to American Samoa and Western Samoa, and a lot of cruisers like to stop at uh, at least American Samoa, do you take advantage of, of American, the American post office? So if you want something shipped from West Marine, you can ship it through the post office, you know, and that will be cheaper than probably international shipping and hopefully less hassles in terms of duties. And then the other advantage of the Babau group and Neafu is that it's more on the latitude of Fiji. And so it's all, it's all just, Nukalofa is just a little bit out of your way unless you're coming up from New Zealand. And so Nukalofa is on the latitude of New Caledonia, more or less. But, you know, people typically want to stop in Baba'u and Fiji if they're crossing the Pacific. They don't want to skip Fiji for sure. And so that, that's why I think very few boats uh, stop at uh, Nupalofa relative to the northern islands of Babylon. I found the prices really reasonable. There's not much in, in way of really high quality foodstuffs here. 
but they do have a lot of fresh food at reasonable prices and you know prices just in general are really really low compared to the Cook Islands or French Polynesia here. Nukalofa has about three quarters, I think. Uh, Nukalofa Tongatapu is about three quarters of the population. So most of the population is down here, about 100,000 in the kingdom of Tonga. And then um, a large proportion of the rest is going to be in Vavahu. All right, so next month in August, uh, we'll have the next vlog, uh, episode 13. This vlog, we've got the disaster at sea but next vlog we're going to visit the forbidding isle of wahuka just me my last solo sailing vlog i think of season two filming season three right now and then uh in september we'll take on crew anna and then jan and sophie will be uh, joining me in the vlog and those vlogs come out monthly on the first Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. New York City time. That's just at YouTube slash Slow Boat Sailing or the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, you can help out by writing a rating or review. And I'm going to try a YouTube live event on Friday at 7 p.m. New York City time. That is GMT minus 4 on Friday the 13th. Freaky Friday. So if you're not doing anything at 7 p.m., join the chat. And we'll talk in Tonga while I'm waiting for my weather window at Big Mama's Yacht Club. That's a YouTube live event. Until next time, have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.